play is actually incredibly educational and we know that you know when you're engaged in a play state research shows that you you learn new skills much more rapidly um, so if you can find a way for something to be play oriented um, it's much more effective this is glenn murphy with nc systema and this is systema for life Rafe, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. It's great to be here. Yeah, I've loved um, following your work and, um, and and attempting to follow your work through the trees and uh, over logs and things like that, <laughs> especially over the summer and uh, and being locked up under COVID. It's given me a, a very uh, worthwhile new direction to to play on my own uh, when denied access to other people. So that's been wonderful. Can you start off? Uh, some folks will already know who you are um, just by dint of the fact that you've been doing this for a while um, in various guises. But can you tell folks a bit about um, who you are, what you do and what your main company is? Yeah, so um, I'm the founder of uh, Evolve Move Play, which is a natural movement system. The idea is essentially to understand the evolutionary uh, heritage of human movement and how we move in a best way that kind of uh, fulfills the function of, of being a human and having a great life and having a meaningful life. So uh, the, the brand name basically is because we evolve for movement and we live a sedentary lifestyle that's really not uh, not successful for a lot of people. Um in, in providing health and providing well-being, and the movement is at the, the core of, of, of fixing that. And we also believe that play is actually incredibly important in, as an education system in understanding and developing movement, and it's often not understood how educational play is and how much of a, a kind of you can improve through play. And also we believe that play is kind of evolution's guide to the movements that are most relevant for human beings. That if you have a drive to inherently engage in certain types of physical activity, that those uh, those have been around for a reason, right? That evolution makes you excited about that kind of movement for, uh, for good reasons. And so if we look at ways that people play uh, cross-culturally and historically and you know, even in other species, we get a guide for the type of things that we kind of just functionally need to be capable of as human beings or as animals in general. So that's uh, that's the origins of uh, the Evolve Move Play idea. Gotcha. And yeah, yep. for me, it evolved. Yeah, go ahead if you have a question you want to answer. Yeah, no, I think, yeah, no, where you go. Yeah, so how did you first become interested in this? Did you come in via the evolutionary biology route as kind of like somebody studying the science? Did you come in as somebody who just enjoyed play who then went to study the science later on? What was your uh, what was your path in? It's a bit of both. Um, I started training martial arts when I was six years old with Tang Sudo. Um, and then moved into Aikido, and then later uh, uh, Kung Fu. And then in my mid-teens, I picked up um, kickboxing and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. So, you know, I was one of the pretty early adopters of, uh, you know, being aware of the Ultimate Fighting Championship and, you know, following in Hoist Gracie's footsteps. And my older brother introduced me to it, and he found a um, an army ranger who was teaching some Jiu-Jitsu out of his shed. And, you know, we trained there for a year. My brother went down to the one of the first Gracie Invitationals and finished, I think, third, uh, if I remember correctly, uh, as a blue belt in the, like, 135 division. Um and uh, you know, got his gi signed by Hickson and uh, and Hoyce and, and all those guys. So I followed in his footsteps there. Um, but then, you know, parallel to that, I was a kid with dyslexia and ADHD, and I grew up at the end of a dirt road, like running around in the woods, just kind of with a lot of freedom. And then I got taken out of school because of my learning disabilities. And I had a mentor who worked with me a lot. And one of the things that he did to help me overcome kind of my learning disabilities was just roughhouse with me a lot. So we just played a lot physically. And 
so I was running around in the woods playing. I was, you know, I had a bunch of older, um, like cousins and their friends who, uh, who built a lot of, uh, mountain biking courses that were quite, you know, that became quite well known and featured in bike magazine. Um, and I was, I, I, I kind of got into that, but then when I was 13, my best friend actually died after a bike accident. And I, so I sort of lost the love of the, <laughs> you know, I, just, it was weird. It was a weird thing for me. So I, I, but I would run through the woods and jump on these bi- uh, bicycle courses and so i like i started imagining like building obstacle courses for running and jumping when i was like 11 years old um i was imagining like designing obstacle courses for the olympics the way that golf courses were designed at at some point cool so 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 that's kind of in parallel with the kind of the development of parkour in europe and the you know the the, all the pioneers of it over there that that started to kick that off yeah Mm. yeah i mean you know, my, my I guess my my little uh, early experiment with parkour uh, w- would sort of die off as I reach, uh, reached my teens, whereas they would they would come together as a group because I didn't have anyone else who was doing it with me. So like I had that early kind of parkour idea, but then then you know in my teens I got into gymnastics and uh, again the martial arts as I mentioned and basketball and I you know I was uh, paying attention to the Olympics and I got into weightlifting and strength training. So I was doing that, but then at a very early age, I was also studying anthropology. At like uh, you know, the other thing that my mentor did that really helped me was he read the Lord of the Rings to me, and so from the Lord of the Rings, I got interested in uh, in mythology in general. So I was studying the Norse mythology, the Greek mythology, and then Celtic mythology. And my last name's Irish. I don't have a lot of Irish heritage, but I got really into my idea of my Irish heritage and like studied all the Celtic mythology uh, and like went to, went to Ireland when I was 15 years old, like. Um, you know, I sold apple cider from the apples that we had on our family property and like saved up $2,000 and paid for my own ticket dial when I was 15. Um, so I was really into that stuff. And then that led me to an interest in anthropology. So by the time I was 13, I was like reading all of the anthropology books at my local library. So probably before I was 14, I had let it, read everything in the county library and then um, I found a mentor, another mentor who was a, was a trained anthropologist who worked in local government who gave me access to his library. So before I, I started community college when I was 16 and I took my first anthropology class there. But by the time that I entered my first introductory anthropology class, I'd already read something like 30 different ethnographic monographs. Um, so. So it was all kind of evolving in parallel for me. And then, you know, throw me anthropology, got really into evolutionary biology and, you know, um, paleontology and paleoanthropology. And it was just kind of always interested in that stuff. So, um, so did you have an idea that you would um, kind of career-wise, for the want of a, of a better word, which seems to be the driver in America most of the time, like, what do you actually do? You know, you, you can't say that, oh, I run around and jump over trees. It's like, what are you doing to make money? It's um, So career-wise, were you thinking you might go the route of being like a, an anthropologist or a cultural anthropologist or something like that? Or? That was the plan. Um, that was the plan. I was, uh, my first plan was to become a fantasy novelist, a la J.R. Tolkien, and then, uh, then I became an anthropologist. And I, by, you know, by the time 13, 14, I was convinced I was going to be an anthropologist and went through college, you know, uh, till I pretty much had three classes left to finish my anthropology degree. But I had pretty much felt that anthropology had become, you know, ideologically corrupted to the point where it, it, it was 
really not about trying to understand human nature at all so much it was about advancing uh, a specific you know political ideology a lot of the time and the the standards of uh, of evidence and the standards of argumentation were extremely poor and um, I was just burned out by it so I started coaching gymnastics and I found that I had a knack for coaching and I really loved working with kids and just loved the the process of helping people develop skills so I walked away from my academic career at 20 uh 21 and uh, 22 and um and just focused on that and i i uh encountered parkour and that was kind of like this huge you know uh eye-opening experience right i was it's as if you know this this whole idea of like the heroic journey that you experience um in 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 these novels was was happening right it was like you know there were no dragons out there in the world but there was still the capacity to overcome yourself in a way to like face down the dragons in your own heart and your fear through doing these heroic jumps and i don't know so i fell in love with it right away and became one of the early adopters of parkour um but because i had that martial arts background and i was always curious about the way that parkour interacted with martial arts and so I had the gymnastics background i was like how do all these things come together and the strength training background i was like i was kind of looking at this parkour as a as a window into a broader perspective on human movement from a very early uh, early point of adopting it when i was exposed to ideas of george hubert and uh, method natural and that kind of really lit a fire under me as well. And so I started taking my training into nature and training primarily in nature. And I was exposed to CrossFit around the same time. It was back in 2005, 2006. And so I was going out and like doing CrossFit wads with stuff in nature. So I'd be doing thrusters with like giant logs that I found in the woods and then climbing trees instead of doing pull-ups and then running and jumping over, like doing obstacle courses in the raw, in the, in the woods instead of like running, you know? So I would do this and, at the same time, I was training Muay Thai and Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. Um, actually, lot, bit, <laughs> yeah, yeah, a little bit of a you know, you guys these are Sistema guys, but uh, I, I trained a little bit with um, with one of Scott Sonnen's uh, direct students, uh, who's in Bellingham. So I had a little bit of that Russian martial arts um, sort of lineage influence. Uh, got to play a little bit with that stuff. Uh, Back in the day as well, so I think I did about, about six months of training with Dan Kamisha, who was a Scott student, and um, I was actually as a bouncer at the time. So I was like, we were practicing specifically skills for how to move through crowds and move people and yeah. get people out of the bar. Yeah, um, we got some very good, handy, specific stuff for that kind of thing. So it's <laughs> it's, it's a lot from the from the military and military police. That's just like how do you efficiently get people to be somewhere else? You know, it's a it's a good system for that. You know, it's like it's, jujitsu is really good for strangling people on the ground, but it's sometimes not so good. For moving people so yeah yeah, yeah. yeah i mean yeah. you have to adapt a little bit more right you, you yeah. don't want to be doing takedowns in a bar a crowded no. bar with glass on the floor and you know, get kicked in the back of the hard. head by his girlfriend you know it's like, <laughs> so so you're based in washington you grew up in washington that was kind of your area yeah or was it? Yeah. yeah gotcha mm-hmm. yeah. yeah based in uh yeah seattle washington and um seattle where, natural uh, natural environment kind of shaped you in a way as well right it's all around you the whole time yeah so it's like, yeah 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 I grew you grew up, up in kansas it might have been different it's like <laughs> 
<laughs> Maybe, yeah. <laughs> I grew up an hour and a half northeast of of uh, of of Seattle in the Skagit County, um, which is a rural area. My, my family actually homesteaded there in 1920. And so, you know, they, they started the first shake mill in that area and kind of started the industry of that area. So, um, lots of history of tree climbing and interesting, uh, adventures in my family back, back in the day there. Nice. So, um, so it's obviously a lot in there. You've, you've got like a very, um, broad movement bio, a lot, so, so many different things, the threads that you've pulled together to make the system that that you have and the practice that you continue to learn from and and teach from as well just now but i just want to pull out a couple of little things so one of them was that um you, you mentioned when you were a kid and you like with schooling kind of it, it seemed that your learning differences and add and things like that were were pulled out by like a qualified therapist who understood the value of kind of movement and giving people giving kids a challenge in rough housing and stuff like that in order to help them re-engage with things and i think that's a right now it seems that's a fairly common thing my wife teaches at a montessori school and um when they have kids who are um diagnosed or diagnosable with add or even with some um types of uh, autism autistic spectrum um, behaviors that they find that um, positive pressures and and uh, kind of engaging with the environment and getting them outside as much as po- possible can have such an enormously positive effect on their engagement in an in intellectual capacity and also the idea that it's a little bit different with kids with autism because they, they like to be structured and restricted in some ways whereas a lot of kids just like to be free to play and things like that as well but I think there's been a growing recognition at least over the last 10 years in the value of play to kids right that you have to get them outside that you have to get them to play and this whole thing that came out of the george w bush no child left behind so let's make sure we test them all the time so let's just cut recess and cut physical education they can spend more time in class i think everybody realizes that was pretty disastrous and that's not the way forward right and most people in education now are trying to push for the opposite and trying to break things up again and try and move that up but i don't think there's been that same recognition for adults has there it's, it's it, there's a, still this kind of i don't know stigma attached to play is like that's something you do when you're a kid and then you have to grow the fuck up you know it's like stop playing and stop doing things and it's and it's desperately sad i think and one of the things that i love about systema is that it's not prescriptive and it's it's based on learning through play we don't even have prescribed techniques for the most part um and parkour seems to be very similar in that can you speak a little bit to to your experience with trying to convince adults that it's a good idea to play versus them saying teach me the thing i want to do the one thing specifically yeah 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 uh, just, just to correct real quickly, my my mentor was not a was not a therapist or qualified. He was just a, a renter who, who lived on a on the land that we owned and rented a piece of land and um, took an interest in me and basically, you know, intuitively figured out what worked for me. Um, but you know, I did get diagnosed officially with ADHD and dyslexia, but I didn't continue to work with those therapists. But in any event, um, yeah, I mean. The Protestant work ethic is a big part of uh, of Western culture, and um, and we we tend to think of play as the antithesis of work, which is kind of a specifically um, it, it's a culturally spe- specific idea. If you look at hunter foragers, often the word they use for the the sort of high spirited hijinks that children engage in is the same word they use for uh, hunting or fishing or doing whatever work that is necessary. Right. So this distinction that we have, mm, is, I, I would guess that it, in some ways it is. Um, it's evolved out of the reality that we have to do things that aren't very attuned to our nature. So if you think about what a hunter-forager's work is, it looks a lot like the things that people do for leisure, 
sure. for like fishing right? so, or stuff like yes, that yeah. You know, um, so so people do that now is play, um, but for them it was necessary to survive. But there's a sense that that it's in, intrinsically enjoyable to do, right? Whereas um, for a lot, you know. Uh, some of the work that's involved in farming is, let, let's say, less intrinsically enjoyable. Um, a lot of people yeah. do do enjoy gardening or enjoy aspects of it, but there's more just straight physical drudgery that can be quite fatiguing and not not as not as enjoyable to do. Um, and then when, once you get to factory work and office work and typing on a computer all day, these are things that are really far from human nature. And so yeah. in order to sustain them, we have to kind of cultivate a work ethic that isn't necessarily... Uh, the same in a situation that that we evolved for, so we've developed this, and and we recognize that we need to work hard. And I, I'm a believer in hard work. I believe that you know, even to get the best impact from your training, there are times where you have to have discipline. Um, you have to cultivate yourself intentionally. Um, but we have made a mistake in kind of viewing play as being uh, unproductive, right? So work is productive and play is unproductive. Or, or at the and, very least kind of peripheral to the main direction that we're trying to go in or something. It's like, it's like yeah, you can play a bit, but it's just a bit you still have to, you know, get down to work at some point. It's like, mm. Exactly. So, but play is actually incredibly educational. And we know that, you know, when you're engaged in a play state, research shows that you you learn new skills much more rapidly. Um, so if you can find a way for something to be play oriented, um, it's much more effective. Uh, there's a lot of interesting research on this in, in kind of like motor learning, but it's probably true of, of all kinds of learning. Are there, there's, there's evidence that it's true of all kinds of learning, but in particular, you know, um, you know, there's this classic dichotomy between sort of like very strict, uh, you know, linear sort of pedagogies, yeah. that you know build through atomized pieces hmm. and you know focus on 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 repetition of a very specific skills without really looking at whether someone's you know engaged in having fun during that process yeah and, and there are kind of parallel systems where people are just learning through playing a game and enjoying the game hmm. and what we find is that often the people who who just play the game actually end up more successful. So sure. um, you can look at street basketball versus like, you know, systematic basketball, right? Mm. So there are, there's a whole education system uh, of basketball that was spread through suburban, primarily white areas in say the 1970s and 1960s. And then there was street basketball, which was primarily in African-American areas. And then, you know, you know, that there were some great players who came out of the, the white system and then, sure. but Predominantly, it was the street ballers who, who, who were extremely successful and seemed to be able to revolutionize the game. And then I, I guess you can see the same thing so in soccer. Yeah, I was going to say like it's predominantly the South American teams. People playing with like a half punctured football in the favelas or something end up being super yeah. creative and they they play like they're dancing a samba. And then you see like the the English the English football team or the Germans and they're just rigorous and they're like let's play this four four two formation and learn these patterns because they're tried and tested. And then the Brazilians dance rings around them right and annihilate us in the World Cup. And things like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, precisely. Yeah, and you know. Uh, the martial arts is a really beautiful example of this, too, because there's all these, you know, um, I, th I think there was something very strange that happened to the martial arts when Western and Eastern culture met. Uh, there was uh, 
you know, there's a massive sort of cultural shift that's happening. There is the death of a lot of the the context that traditional martial arts were within. Um, there was adoption of a lot of specifically Western ideas. I, you know, the the idea of having a a bunch of students in a line doing kata. Um, my understanding is that's that is basically postdates the 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 kind of large influence of of European culture on traditional uh, Japanese and Chinese martial arts. And so you're looking at you know essentially something that's like maybe Swedish gymnastics that has now been prescribed over into uh, into this different cultural context. Um, and then you know people aren't fighting uh, actually, right? And so you you get this this very strange development of these systems that are are very attached to tradition. But those traditions are actually not that old, and um, and they're not they're not skin in the game like tested systems actually, um, and, and you know like my friend Rory Miller uh, talks about the idea that um, you know these these systems were translated poorly by people who didn't actually want to teach us because they were our enemies and hated us. Right? Hi folks, Glenn here. As Systema for Life approaches its 100th episode, I'd like to take a minute to thank everyone who has contributed to the show, all our listeners, and to everyone who's offered requests, encouragement, and feedback along the way. I also need to ask a quick favor. We have already enjoyed two years of high-quality interviews, insights, and ideas on Systema for Life. We'd like to keep the show going, and we want to keep it open to all, but we need your help to do it. It takes time, effort, and more than little cash to produce a podcast more than two grand a year at current hosting and production rates. We have no paid advertising, and we do it all off our own backs with help from listeners and generous supporters like you. So if you're a fan of Systema for Life and you get real value from the ideas and the conversations we create, then please take a few minutes now to subscribe at www.ncsystema.com support. Support at whatever level you feel like you can afford. Even $3 or $5 a month is a help. Think of it as buying us a beer or a cup of coffee once a month for our troubles. So visit ncsystema.com slash support and use the buttons on the page to select your preferred monthly or annual support level. You'll receive a confirmation on sign up and you can cancel at any time. Yeah, I think some of that. I mean, some of that I think just grew out of a. Um, I mean, karate, for an example, I think grew out of Funakoshi wanting to make it educational for the Japanese public, mostly for kids. And the same thing with Jiro Kano and judo, right? It's like it's, it was prescribed as a as a way of kind of. Um, helping people to cultivate themselves, which in some ways is beautiful. And if you look at very traditional Japanese martial arts like Kudo, you know, the way of the bow, it's it's all about that concentration and precision and just feeling every single moment of it. Um, but they don't line up and just release our, you know, arrow after arrow with no reflection and no kind of play with what's going on. It's um, There's a lot more going on within that. And you take it out of that context. And karate is an example of that. They're like, well, we just need to teach one to many. Like, And it almost happened post-industrial, right? It was almost just as, as people were moving from agriculture cultural to industrial and we we're getting used to the idea of a production line they started making these martial arts production lines where a guy stands at the front everybody does their thing and then you get a belt and then you get another one and then blah 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 blah. but nobody stopped to think about whether or not that was actually an efficient system i think for transmitting what it was that you're trying to get across and i think um recent years have probably revealed that it's probably not the most efficient way and you know when i went to i went i studied aikido for many years before i started systema and went to japan and i found that it was both more and less rigorous than the way that I'd started studying it in Scotland. It was more rigorous in the sense that they would, um, they were very, very 
fine on details. They were like, no, you can't move your hand even slightly this way. Like, damn it, damn it, that's bad. Do it again, do it again, figure it out. It was very much correction-based training. Um, but in another way, you didn't have people doing like 300 push-ups just before you start class. And you didn't train actually for like hours on end. You just, they were like farmers. They were relentless. They would just show up at like six in the morning and train for an hour and then go home, go to work or farm on the fields and then come back and then train again from six till seven. And they just did that seven days a week, 365 days a year. But the, the idea was just showing up, playing through the techniques, making it happen. So it was it was a, it was very there was a culture shock obviously involved in just translating into that culture anyway but i was shocked with how much of what i thought was the rigorous um aspect of japanese martial arts or asian martial arts generally that had actually been created it seemed in europe or or in the states or somewhere else that we'd almost taken some caricature of what that looked like and then tried to translate it into everybody bowing to each other and making the noises and doing the things and had lost something about the 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 core of it like the tenet the thing that actually keeps you developing as a person yeah absolutely um i think you know, I love what you said there about it's, you know, it's, it, it came after industrialization and it's essentially factory skill development. Right. Yeah. And I think that that's been, um, I think that that's uh, essentially a Western export mm-hmm. that has been then grafted onto these traditional arts. Uh, like a capoeira, I think, is another example of this, because you can look at traditional capoeira angola, which is basically just playing the game. And then you can look at uh, Hishunao. And what Mr. Bimba came in, he was intentionally modernizing it, right, and creating a systematic approach to these capoeira skills. And, you know, in some sense, he may have been trying to take it back to something more practical and the game had evolved too far away from practicality. Um, But also he was he was essentially taking this this factory mindset, I believe, into the game. Um, And and I think we can see this across all sorts of realms of physical fitness that essentially we've we've looked at the this analogy of the body as a as a machine and the mind as a computer and we have been uh you know we've, we've been looking at the body as a machine at least since uh you know since the dawn of the industrial revolution right or the, the uh, sometime in the industrial revolution and we've been taking this kind of uh you know, machine-based approach to building a skill, to building the body, right? Like Nautilus machines and circuits. This is this is a this is trying to engineer the human body through the process. But the human body doesn't really learn like that and doesn't really develop effectively like that. We're we're much more like an ecology than we are like a machine. Well said. Yeah, and I think there's another thing in that we the ways in which we learn have been studied through like cognitive science like in neuroscience but neuroscience and cognitive science developed in parallel with information science right so that they started borrowing metaphors and so they just assumed that everything about the way they learn the brain is all bits and sequential processing and that we would learn the same way a computer does so it's not only we're treating our bodies like robots which they're not right um, we're also treating our brains like computers which they're not right <laughs> depending on your definition of it we're kind of a unified being and we're the boundary between us and our environment and us and our social context are are a lot more blurry than than we give it credit for in the modern western world i think and that's what i kind of love about systems like yours is that they acknowledge that right away they're like we need this play we need other people to challenge us and push us around uh, push us around we need to understand an environment that's kind of irregular and unchanging and not sterile and interact with it in a way that makes us comfortable and this makes us more malleable as as beings right as organisms rather than you know the crossfit has value i'm sure you know being able to have like multi-planar movement and be strong and resilient through certain ranges and things like that but even 
that. It's not, you know, I'm, that might be an improvement on just Olympic weightlifting or something, but it still has its limits when you're doing it in an air conditioned, you know, garage and you're doing the same things over and over again and nobody comes along and nudges the weight out of your grasp once in a while, right? Or you don't run into a hole in the middle of your jogging run or whatever it's going to be, your, your, your shuttle run or whatever it's going to be, you know? So well, I think we need this variation as, as, or we have to accept that this variation exists. But. Well, I mean, the first fundamental physical task is to be able to locomote your body through your environment and live in environments that are intentionally stripped of all physical challenge. Um, and we become blind to the fact that that, uh, that that's, that that's a, a kind of a cage. So, uh, martial artists, most martial artists train exclusively in a gym setting and they don't realize how much the way that they move is actually conditioned on that setting. So for instance, um, you know, the slapping, uh, that's done in martial arts break falls. Um, yeah. uh, we rarely get having, this all the time in system. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I believe that it's, it's entirely, uh, it's entirely a, a byproduct of demonstration based martial arts and practicing on mats. It, it is not a functional or healthy habit when you're moving on concrete. No. Or, or actually, if you're in a crowded environment, you, know, you get into that habit of throwing an arm out and there's a chair leg there. That's it. Crack. You've brushed your skateboard bone or something. You know, it's, it's, it's really dumb. It doesn't even align you that well. You, know, it's like, you can learn to move a lot softer than that. But anyway, yeah, you've got, you've yeah. got me on a, on a, on a yeah. sore, sore point yeah. there. So. <laughs> that's a Sistema point too. But, but yeah. uh, Sistema is unique in this way in some sense in that, that you guys actually think about where, what is the environment <clears throat> that you're fighting in, right? Um, you know, you, you, uh, you're going to, uh, you need to adopt different techniques when you're on concrete than when you're on soft mats. Um, grass is different too. You know, I took my Capoeira, the Capoeira school I was training with out on to, to, tra uh, to train outside and check out some of the stuff that I did once. And we were doing the Jenga on grass and they were slipping all over the place. Like they had no capacity to adapt to this very simple change in the surface, right? Having slight variations in the surface and yeah. having the, a different texture of the surface meant that their technique was completely not robust. So, you know, I'm a believer in creating robust movement problem solvers. Like I think that's the fundamental thing that makes you a functional athlete. Um, and actually I think yeah. that's that, that it's sort of um, everything about a human being is actually sort of bootstrapped up from movement and, so it's not yeah. that being a good mover necessarily makes you a better human being, but it actually provides the best foundation for a quest to being a better human being. It gives you the best insight uh, generation practice. Yeah, I, I think that's something that's been deeply under, undervalued. But there's, there's kind of two schools of academic thought, which I've come across in the past few years, which have been really interesting. And one is kind of um, Barbara Tversky. I don't know if you're familiar with her work. She's the wife of Amos Tversky, the famous founder of um, kind of cognitive behavioral economics, who won the Nobel Prize with Daniel Kahneman for thinking fast and slow and all that stuff. Yeah, so his, his wife was is also a brilliant neuroscientist, right? And has been studied for years. And she released a book, um, I think two years ago, called Mind in Motion. And it's essentially about the concept that all of our thinking is spatial. It's all based on relationships of space. And the things that we associate with language, you kind of, you summon a shape first. You suddenly kind of a, like a mental position and then you overlay language. And like none of thought essentially is really linguistic. 
and yet we cling to this idea as if as if it is and so spatial relationships form the basis of our thinking and the more understanding we have of spatial relationships then the more that we the more diverse our thinking becomes right and we even in speech we even reflect how far we are from somebody else's political views right or how close we are to somebody emotionally like literally we use metaphors of distance and shape like that he's a prickly person or whatever it's going to be he's he's a bit square he doesn't show up for things you know whatever it's going to be so and so her school of thought is like you need to think all the time about the fact that your thought is spatial anyway your reasoning is spatial and the more you kind of acknowledge and embrace that the, the easier it becomes to think and actually the easier it becomes to become creative and do interesting things that are out of the box right and the other school of thought is from um, from evolutionary biology, which states like, the, the the basis on which the brain got so big in the first place, why human brains so big and so complex, and it's not so that we could think more. It's because we have more, we had more complex movement patterns, and as an emergent property of having a very very um, diverse and interconnected brain that could control this massively complex, millions of degrees of freedom body that we have as emergent property of that thoughts came out of it so in in a lot of ways your capacity for dexterity kind of underpins your capacity for dexterous thought right and and it's not really been represented that way traditionally is it it's usually got you've got this myth of the jock of the sporty guy who does all the sporty things and he's kind of dumb and doesn't do well in schools and gets poor sats or something like that and then you've got the nerd who's kind of wiry and and, and poorly built and clumsy and like the, the absent-minded professor I'd kind of never the twain shall meet. But everything that we've learned over the past kind of 10, 20 years of neuroscience seems to suggest that the ideal situation is that the jock you know applied to learning as long as that that way of physically educating himself and his movement is geared towards dexterity instead of just kind of drive performance then he'll actually learn better and be more intelligent and the nerd could become more intelligent as a result of (laughs) of of actually physically developing themselves in terms of physical dexterity right that it will free up new avenues of thought do do you have anything to say about that or anything in your experience that's kind of resonated with it (laughs) yeah absolutely i mean that's that's right in kind of my wheelhouse i haven't read that book though but i'll but i'll have to read that but uh you know i've been heavily influenced by John Verbeke, who talks a, a lot about, you know, kind of similar things, you know, um, we, we, we use physical metaphor as the foundation of thought, right? So we understand something, we're standing under it, we have a grasp on something, right? Do you catch what I'm saying? Right? Uh, we're constantly using these physical metaphors, and they're fun- foundational to how we think. And essentially, yeah, what we know is that the brain evolves first to control movement, right? There's the famous example of the sea squirt, right? It digests its brain once it becomes a sessile organism, right? And no longer mobile. Um, and um, there, there's, a, there's a, you know, we can go back to Descartes and Descartes basically placing the the, the center of the self in the capacity for thought and for reason, right? I think, therefore I am. Um, and the body is a sort of sort of separated from that. And, you know, Verbeke tracks that back to a kindness and the separation between the supernatural and the natural world. Um, but, uh, but Descartes, you know, he, he's incredibly brilliant and, you know, he's a father of modern science, but he, he, he creates this dualism, um, which is probably, you know, also slightly dumbed down in the way that other people sort of pass it on from Descartes. And that becomes this, this way that we think about ourselves. And then when we invent the computer and the computer is like uh, a machine in the shape of a human mind that even more in some sense, uh, kind of lends us to the belief that, that the mind is something that we can separate from the body. Right. And so we think of ourselves as kind of like, uh, the body as this vessel that moves the computer of the self around. And this is, this is not no longer 
sustainable with the insights from neuroscience, the insights from evolutionary biology, the insights from cognitive science. Um, so I'm very influenced by ecological psychology and the work of James James, James Gibson, and we're, um, yeah, it's just the the information processing mind as computer analogy has misled us. And if we look at the, you know, one thing that has been interesting for me as I've done some of this research recently is like if we look back to the origins of um, of of our philosoph of philosophy, we see that it actually arises from so science is you know is is a is a child of philosophy but philosophy is a child of physical culture and this is something that people really don't understand or, or have forgotten but um the the greek city states had gymnasia which were places where people met to engage in physical practice to wrestle to run races to throw stones to practice weapons um you know basically like a very nice complete martial arts system that covered all the things that a warrior would need um, to serve as a Greek hoplite. And so they, they young men, um, mostly young men in most cities and young women in Sparta would meet at these places and engage in, in physical practice. And it was in these gymnasia that the practice of dialogue and philosophy was born. So, um, it's like an outgrowth of wrestling almost, just kind of like there's a back and forth kind of so dialectic becomes something. Yeah. Mm. So, Plato, right? Uh, so Socrates was a stonemason, right? Socrates is, of course, one of the most important figures in, in, in the history of Western philosophy. So he's a stonemason. Um, and then Plato, his name is, is not, his given name was not Plato, his uh, given name was Aristocles. Um, Plato is a nickname, which means broad, which he earned as a wrestler. And he, uh, he wrestled not in the Olympic Games, but in one of the other major games, and I believe he did quite well. So, you know, the, the father of Western philosophy is not a, a kind of... Um, a bookish uh, intellectual kind of thing. Yeah. A bookish intellectual <laughs> yeah. sitting, you know, in a library. Yeah. But it's actually a, you know... Uh, a, a leader of men physically in, in in wrestling, who's then kind of engaging in discussion, um, Socrates as well, in the gymnasia. So um, there's the academy, the lyceum, and the kinosarges, I believe, are the three primary gymnasia in Athens that became um, the, the origins of the different philosophical schools. So the cynics, for instance, come from the kinosarges. So all these things are, are, are essentially rooted in physical practice. And that's something that we also see that cultivation of wisdom is associated with physical practice, not just in the history of Western philosophy, but also something that we see all over the world. So, you know, um, yoga uh, is is yoga is actually, I would say, um, a fairly intellectual practice or a fairly you know mind oriented practice. It's been adopted in the West in a way where it's very physically oriented. But Hatha Yoga, the asana, were was a, were, a, were part of a ecology of physical of practices of self-cultivation and wisdom yeah but the asana existed and had a purpose within that and then in in, in the chinese martial arts uh the internal martial arts are, are essentially bagua jinghi and uh and and tai chi are all specifically associated with taoism and were part of Taoist schools of practice that involved lots of other physical alchemy and meditative practices and any number of other wisdom cultivation practices. Sumo in Japan is specifically associated with Shinto practices. Um, so, like, 
this idea and and we can go back to shamanism and see that shamanism is is not sort of just sitting and meditating or astrally projecting yourself it's always associated with dancing uh you know often with with rituals that, uh, around wrestling physical practices you know in, in intense physical passages right where you would intentionally stress your body to an extreme degree in order to allow uh some sort of transformation so so there, there, there's something that I think we've we've gotten deeply wrong in kind of the post-Ecart physical culture of the West, where we've separated it from the mind, and and then we've separated the mind from the body, where we think that in order to pursue our intellectual capacity, that uh, that the body is. Um, at best, very tangential to it. Like maybe you think that I need to be healthy in order to have clarity of mind, but you don't think that like the the coordination of the hemispheres of my brain and my capacity to generate insight and to think spatially is actually built on this, uh, the, you know, it's bootstrapped off of my physicality. To all our listeners and Systema fans around the world, NC Sistema have moved all of our regular classes online, live streaming group classes via Zoom, most days at 6.30 p.m. U.S. Eastern Standard Time, plus daytime classes on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Sundays. Please consider this an open invitation for you and your students to join us for the duration of COVID, to come together online, and to keep our skills and our groups alive. Payment is on a sliding scale relative to where you're at and what you can afford. Visit ncsystema.com online to sign up today. Join us. Yeah, I think one of one of the turning points for me on understanding this was probably looking at the work of uh, Nicholas Bernstein, like uh, the the pre-Soviet um, physiologist uh, and one of my instructors, system instructors, Emmanuel Manolakakis, who's Greek and often talks about you know Greek influences on physical culture and things like that as well. Who's a wrestler as well, interestingly enough. Um, he put me in touch with that and just this idea that um, neurologically how you build up movements. And this is interesting because I, I didn't know this before I started training Systema. And then when I started training with Vladimir Vasiliev and some of the great you know the great instructors in Systema, um, I could see that they're actually layering their teaching progressions in this way. They're literally like you start with like wriggling on the floor like a worm, you know, just kind of finding the difference between tonus and no tonus. And then you start building up kind of um, B-level you know, dexterity of just understanding where your arms and legs are in space, and then you locomote yourself through space, like translocate your body from one place to another, and then you combine them into multidextrous movements that require you to do one thing with this hand, one thing with this leg, coordinate everything around your center of gravity, and then once you can do that, you can work with objects, you can work with other people, you can work with walls, you can work with obstacles, things like that. But often, it seemed to me that in some other schools of physical thought, um, even in gymnastics, like, um, they would they would jump straight to very complex neurological movements and then just try and make people do them over and over and over again, like a pommel vault or something. You know, like be like, okay, let's just keep doing this, and then when you mess it up, we can give you some tips on how to do like a handspring or something like that. And it seemed to be a very specific section of skills rather than try and teach somebody, for example, how to be comfortable just standing and balancing on one, and then what does it feel like just to kind of vault one? And that to me starts to look a lot more like parkour right um you know when the way that you learn to vault and jump and having been through some of your introductory courses in natural parkour that evolve move play puts across it's it's very um it's very organic and it's kind of immersive it, it doesn't push you into a really specific set of sequences like you put your hand here then you put your fingers here and then you launch with this angle Do you know it's like, it's like you have to feel and play and you build it up from very very simple things into slightly more complex things and it kind of it leaves you comfortable to explore and play and fail right and be okay as you go along right I've seen some other systems teach 
parkour in a different way where it kind of jumps straight in at the like okay if you want to do a cat hang you have to jump at the wall at this angle and do it with your fingers and i'm like i don't have the requisite strength yet and i don't have the requisite understanding of my momentum like all all i'm gonna do is hurt my knees and elbows here do you know it's like and if i still have so much fear of the surface that i'm on then it doesn't matter how much technical direction i get my fear of losing balance is going to make me do weird things in the moment. And that's probably going to get me injured, right? So I could see the, the downsides. And so in, in a lot of ways, I see gymnastics and the, the way that it's being changed now. And you can see other people at GMB and people like that who are just kind of breaking down some elements of it and giving people the building blocks before they're trying to get them to do complex gymnastic skills like planches or things like that. Um, and then you can see in, in Sistema and in some other martial arts and even in some schools of jiu-jitsu, they're trying to build you up from basal principles of playing and feeling and movement into more complex ideas. And and I see what what you've done. And I think it's, it's, if it's, it's very much in keeping with that kind of Bernstein, let's get to these things neurologically one at a time. And yet you also have this space for experimentation and, and playing and passing and failing and just kind of learning through yourself. Is it, was that by design or was that just kind of an amalgam of, of the techniques that you'd already learned and the way that you learned them? Yeah. So, um, you know, I'd built most of evolved move play before I encountered Bernstein. Um, but, mm-hmm. uh, but, you know, it's an interesting insight to think about, you know, Bernstein's potential influence on, on the development of like the Sistema and the Soviet uh, physical practice. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think Bernstein is, you know, absolutely a prophet of, uh, of, of physical culture. And I think that for anyone who's interested in, in parkour or movement culture or, or any of this stuff, uh, reading, you know, dexterity on dexterity is like, you know, pick it up now. But um, yeah. there's, a, there's a few different ideas that, that are kind of, that I would separate out in, in, in what you're talking about. There's, there's appropriate progression, right? Um, mm-hmm. And, and you can, you can look at Bernstein's like levels of the nervous system or like levels of development of movement and how that happens neurologically. And then there's uh, basically self-organized or constraint-led learning and how that interacts with, with this. So, so what you're describing in Systema in some sense is like a, a, a learning system that's well attuned to the layers of Bernstein's yeah. neurological system. And mm. what, what we're seeing in parkour I would say is actually more about the power of play and about const- a, a sort of constraint oriented physical practice. So, okay. um, so essentially if you're looking at an athlete learning to organize a skill, there's a couple different ways that, that the athlete can glean information that helps them orient the skill. One is that there is information in the environment and the task itself that the nervous system can understand and can fix. Okay. So if you put the right environment in the, and you ask the right sort of task from somebody, then they'll automatically sort of self-generate and figure it out. And then the other aspect is, uh, you know, uh, what they call augmented information in, 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 uh, in, in the ecological psychology research, which is where I'm going to use my words to try to, to, to give you um, some, some other way of thinking about and understanding it. So a lot of guys in the ecological psychology research, they actually think that augmented information is mostly detrimental and that we want to use constraints as much as possible. I don't necessarily go down that road. I'm very influenced by uh, like Nick Winkleman. And I think that effective cueing that communicates well is really important, but that if we can base things on constraints as much as possible, we're going to have really, really good results. So if we look at, uh, if we look at gymnastics, gymnastics arises, uh, 
basically, I think at the end of the 17th century, if I remember correctly, or 18th, it's in, in the 18th century, it starts with uh, Jan and uh, some of these other folks who are, there's, it's a very interesting historical moment because it's, it's also tied in with the rise of nationalism. And it's the same time that a lot of the sports that, uh, that you know, are popularized worldwide were codified in, in, um, in, in England, right? Um, but g- gymnastics was very specifically a German sport and it was like a, a an Aryan idea and they were they were specifically kind of trying to claim the heritage that all of so all of Europe basically had fallen in love with the heritage of the classics with the Greeks and the Romans right because all of a sudden you know as we entered that period of time we had way more access to that than 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 Europe had had during the medieval period and mm. And, you know, it was incredible. The information and the, the wisdom that, that, that was extracted from this was, was all of a sudden, you know, and then, you know, the dawn of modern science and all these things were happening. Part of that was the discovery of the Indo-European language family. And, and so then there was this idea that the, that, that, that the Greeks who existed today couldn't be the Greeks of the past because, you know, they weren't accomplished enough and they were too brown. Um, and so the real inheritors of the Greek Aryan legacy were the Germans or... You know, if you're French, it was the French, and the the origins of French physical culture also have the same thing. Or the, the British, all of these guys were in love with the idea of the Greeks, in love with the idea of of this sort of glorious Aryan history, and they were they were building these uh, their physical cultures in some sense as uh, as ways to to sort of connect to that past. Um, mm-hmm. But this is also happening at the rise of industrialization, and so gymnastics, I think becomes very engineering oriented and 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 so it you know there's an incredible skill that comes out of gymnastics but i you know i was a gymnastics coach and i've been thinking about mm-hmm. gymnastics and its relationship to parkour for a long time because parkour in many ways is uh is kind of like going back to a lot of the roots of gymnastics Right. So the, the famous Kong vault and parkour, you know, existed in gymnastics as the squat vault, right? Or the squat on vault. Um, that, you know, like the dash vault existed in as a pike vault in, in gymnastics, but they were all lost as the skills developed. And, you know, now that people can do double flipping, twisting vaults, no, like they don't even, a lot of times they don't even teach these, these fundamental physical skills. Sure, why anymore. would you? You're going to get like 3.2 from the German judges for doing a Kong vault, you know? <laughs> so, so they, so they've been lost. And, but that, that was part of, of the origins of gymnastics and the, the founders of, 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 uh, of, of parkour were influenced by that as well. So, you know, David was a gymnastics student um, at one point. Uh, his father Raymond was, and they were doing vaults off of off of trampolines over horses and and you know all these things. So I came from gymnastics, and I was influenced, as I said earlier, by the rise of CrossFit. And one of the claims that CrossFit made was the gymnasts learned sports faster than other athletes. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I was always curious about that claim, and 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 you know. CrossFit sort of claims that it teaches a combination of gymnastics, uh, weight training, and like track and field. Um, you know, a few other things. That that's their archetype of the ideal athlete. But they they stopped very early teaching anything to do with like being able to do cartwheels, do hand uh, like you know, do complex handstand tricks. You know, they do handstand walking and stuff and handstand pushups, but no no pirouettes, um, no flips, very little rolling or tumbling. Um, 
And I thought that they had missed the boat on what gymnastics was actually informing you about, because I thought it was the complexity of the movement skills and the, the, the ongoing layering of complexity that allowed the athlete to be more adaptive in learning new skills. Hmm. So, but they interpreted it as like, if you have more strength in more ranges, which is what gymnastics gives you, then you can apply yourself to any, like they're like, you can have power in ranges that other people don't have. And it's like, that's a massive, they're taking tin when they could have had gold, right? So, so, yeah. I mean, yeah. I think it's, it's basically like, uh, gymnastics is developmental of relative strength. I think that was the prime thing that they were looking at relative, you know, weightlifting for absolute strength, gymnastics for relative strength and this combination of the two. Well, in, what's been called like functional strength now. That's the new phrase, right? Everybody's treating functional strength systems and no matter what it is it's functional strength it's like as opposed to non-functional strength i don't even know what that is so. <laughs> you know leg press that's that's the idea but uh, but yeah so 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 i was curious about that idea from an early age and i, I spoke to a cirque du soleil cord, uh, uh recruiter in 2006 at a gymnastics conference and he said yeah gymnasts learn learn new tricks pretty fast but they're not the fastest the fastest athletes in cirque are always the capoeiristas the capoeiristas will learn any new challenge faster than anybody else. And I thought it's a very interesting observation. And then I've kind of compared parkour and gymnastics over the years. And I've always asked myself this question, like, okay, like as a, as a gauge for how developed parkour is, how, if you, if you had a crossover, like imagine taking an elite gymnast, I'll say Kohei Uchimura, who's probably the greatest gymnast of the last uh, decade. Uh, well, greatest male gymnast of the last oh, decade. Simone Biles. Uh, is Simone Biles <laughs> yeah. is the greatest gymnast of the last decade. But, uh, um, but yeah, so, so we'll take Kohei Uchimura and he, you know, and you imagine him preparing to be able to be an elite, uh, parkour athlete, right? Um, and you could take someone from parkour and imagine them preparing to be a elite gymnast. And so, you know, in 2010, it was like, oh, well, obviously the gymnast would just crush us, right? In 2013, yeah, probably the gymnasts are going to crush us, but I'm not so sure now. And I, I think that now you can make an argument that it would be probably easier in some sense for some of the elite parkour athletes who focus on acrobatics to translate to gymnastics and vice versa. So uh, gymnastics has a, a skill level that goes up to E-level skills, I believe. So there's A, B, C, D, E, um, and each has a, has a point value. So so I've, I've, seen a, I've seen a corollary to that in people coming into trisystema, right? Um, in that I, when somebody comes in, they're like, oh, I've got a martial arts background, so I'll probably be good at this. You know, they've done, they've done taekwondo or they've done karate or some kickboxing or something. And that, in my experience, is no guarantee that you'll be any good at systema because often you come in with a structure that you depend on and, you know, you, you have to keep your stance a certain way or you can't let go of a certain type of movement or you have to hold your spine or your hands a certain way. Um, and they find it harder to kind of free themselves up, whereas the people actually who genuinely do have a head start is dancers that's what i find when people come in if they have a background in like contact improv or like even ballet something like that you know they're used to holding structure in their body while folding and collapsing other parts and engaging the ground softly and you know and and also relating to other people in a way that's not um kind of conflict driven which sounds weird for a martial art because there's obviously there's conflict but if you have the ability to choose whether or not you collide with somebody right you can collide on purpose make contact on your terms that's huge and dancers can do that right and then and, and in other martial arts especially if you've been doing one that's not very competitive and it's just standing in lines and doing things they seem to lack that skill set and they've only kind of brought their dexterity up to a very specific level that's just for the job that they're doing right and uh, even even gymnasts i think they have a certain core strength um but that not as a adaptable in that way as dancers i find 
Yeah, I, I agree. I think that'd be an interesting topic. Let me finish my other thought and yeah, we'll come back sorry, to the day. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Um but um but yeah, so so now the best parkour athletes in the world are the best parkour athletes who focus on acrobatics are now completing D level skills outdoors in much more difficult circumstances. So there are parkour athletes who've done um, you know, uh full twisting double backflips outdoors there's parkour athletes who've done you know um off of a high bar parkour athletes have done triple backflips off of uh you know swing triple backflips like that's like there are there are gymnasts who have competed full twisting triple backflip but it's it's extremely rare that's the e-level right um but d-level three uh, triple backflip you're you know that that's that's pretty much as difficult as anyone's going to compete outdoors actually uh not jared and hula has done double twisting double backflip outdoors off of or um He's done it onto three-quarter inch um, rubber matting over concrete, you know, off of a metal bar. Um, you know, there there are parkour athletes doing double back or double side flip to precision landing on a wall, like yay wide, right? So the the level of acrobatics, as far as like you just look at how many times they're twisting in the air, how many times they're flipping mm. in the air, um, it's mm. basically comparable now. Yeah, yeah. that's um, amazing. And yeah. this is without the mats. This is onto hard surfaces, and this is by athletes who. Uh, aren't generally training 40 hours So if you treated week, those like parallel experiments, and you didn't mean, yeah, if you treated like running parallel um, experiments with different, uh, I mean, I guess there's probably been some crossover. So you know, some what that indicates to me is that there's something about the pedagogy of gymnastics that's actually retarding the growth of their students. And there's something about the pedagogy of parkour, which is allowing people to self-generate and build movement competency much more efficiently. And I believe that it fundamentally comes down to the difference between a linear pedagogy that treats a human being as a machine with a computer as a brain, and a pedagogy that actually doesn't exist. Right? The thing about parkour is that largely there is no pedagogy for these students. Right? Most of the top athletes in the world are self-trained. And so simply by exposing themselves to the environment and finding the flow state, they have been able to generate this massive learning curve. So my point is that um, that that's an example of how effective environmental constraints and play-based learning mm -hmm. oh, yeah, phenomenal. can yeah. create a extraordinary uh, skill progression. So parkour in some Definitely sense has achieved class, yeah. <laughs> what gymnastics achieved over 400 years in 20 years, right? Without, without a systematic training system, without a whole sport behind it, without being in the Olympics, without any of these things. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the, there's a lot of elite parkour athletes who do have gymnastics backgrounds, like Nate West, who's one of my former students, who, who, uh, who was one of the guys who did a triple backflip off high bar, he, uh, you know, or off a, off a bar. He, um, he, you know, he, he was a level nine gymnast. Sure, yeah, especially Philip Martin gymnastics trained that way years. almost exclusively, right there, you know, the high extraordinarily from the authorities that they're actually training, you know, things like that by, by encapsulating level. or codifying but, um, it in dance. <laughs> And the silat, so, I think so, so yeah, I view them as kind of uh, these two experiments, and I think that that what you find from those experiments is that this sort of constraint-led, uh, play-based approach has extraordinary um, impact in in how we learn. Um, to go to the dance thing, I just wanted to riff on that for a second because I think it's quite interesting. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with Israel Adesanya, right? So maybe you know, arguably the best mm. mar mixed martial arts fighter in, in the world right now. I believe, yeah. Um, I believe that if I if I understand the facts correctly, mm. Israel Adesanya didn't have a martial arts background. Um, 
before he was 18 years old. And he walked into an MMA gym when he was 18 years old, and he took a fight a week later. Um, and he, he, but what he had was that he was a dancer, right? He was a hip hop dancer. And you can still see that in him. And you'll find very frequently that, that really sort of exceptional movers in combative situations um, have some kind of dance background. And traditionally, dance and martial arts are very closely related, right? A lot of, yeah, a chasse and ballet, I believe, is a pike formation movement, right? Put your spear down, and then you all have to move in parallel forward. Right? And so you move by by that it's it's a it's a it's a it's a shuffle right it's a right um it's a it's it's footwork just like we use in yeah. um it's been it's been modified to be aesthetic and fundamentally we're, we're working on like are you using crossing footwork or shuffling footwork you know slide stepping footwork right those those same mechanics are there um so that doesn't surprise me. In our work, what we do is we we tend to look at uh, at dance as the at contact improv and dance in general, but we use contact improv primarily as a as a place in which we can develop rapport in learning how to communicate well with another body and how to play well. Because fundamentally, if you if you you don't develop skill very well when you're under high threat. So obviously we need to play with intensity in martial arts. We need to know what the speed feels like in a real martial arts context. We need to know kind of some of the stuff. But if you if you're always in a place of 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 kind of getting really potentially hurt in your martial arts mm-hmm. training, what you'll tend to do is actually narrow your behavioral repertoire. So this is a key point of contention. Not one to interrupt on this one, but this is a key point of contention with Sistema and how we train in the. Um, 90% of our training is this way. It's slow, it's exploratory, and it's it keeps you just on the edge of what feels dangerous. So we'll use, for example, real knives, but then we'll move extremely slowly and we start with the knife in contact with the body so that you know where it is all the time. Or we'll use, um, you know, we'll go faster, but we use like a solid wooden or like steel with plastic wrapped training knife and then chase somebody a lot faster and do things. But we don't chase somebody with a sharp knife, right? And cut them. And we don't actually use pads because we feel like that would um, give you a sense of full security and you want actually the real sense of fear that you get from fists but we don't just spar straight out with fists as hard as possible because as soon as you break your teeth and get annoyed like mike tyson says everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth right you engage these systems and you end up going into gross motor movement and dumb things so we're constantly keeping ourselves on the edge of where it's possible to do complex fine motor skills and to understand what's going on to explore and play and then as over time that edge gets bigger and bigger and then you'd be surprised at where you can play you know you really can play with people who have knives and things but when these drills are kind of shared and other martial artists see them they're like they're going too slow or he's not trying that hard or you know they they look like they're being too safe he's not really under pressure it's just like yeah this is where we learn the expression we have in Sistema is like slow is where you learn fast is where you show off right (laughs) fast is if you do something fast and full intensity then you're basically just exhibiting the skills that you already have you're probably not going to learn anything new in that environment right so sorry just not to just want to throw that in there yeah yeah i mean i I think there's a lot of utility to to the slow exploratory um but i also think that if if there's not enough fast it's very easy to adopt habits that uh that don't translate so you need you need you need to occasionally get hit hard um you need to know it's it's very hard there's a lot of things that you um there's a lot of things that you that you can do at slow speeds that you can't do at fast speeds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Um, so, you know, a lot of kicks get caught that aren't going to get caught. A lot of weird movements, a lot of hands, and a lot of blocks and catches that or, aren't going to work. Multi-part grapples that people just stand there as you walk around them and put locks on them and things. It's like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so I'm a big believer in the utility of it. I think it needs to be placed in context. Um, uh, so yeah, so I, I mean, you know, I, I'm, I'm good friends with Matt Thornton. You know, Matt Thornton. Yeah. 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 Um, so I'm a huge believer in, you know, in the aliveness approach. Right. But I think that we, we can, um, we can, we can play with a balance between how do we, um, how do we, uh, sorry, I'm throwing some names out here. Steve Morris. You're familiar with Steve Morris? Uh, not really. No. Okay. Check out Steve Morris. Amazing work. Um, uh, he's been sort of doing mixed martial arts stuff, no old bard type, uh, stuff and also doing an extremely deep, uh, dive into the research on neurobiology, constraint led approach. Um, you know, all the Bernstein stuff, like he's been thinking about this stuff since the 1970s and, you know, extraordinarily revolutionary, I think. But one of the things he likes is mini fights, right? So, you know, uh, like in the army, they do this drill called army milling, right? So you like have a one minute, you're just going forward as hard as you can. You're trying to hit each other as much as you can for, for Steve, this is important. You have to do some stuff like this occasionally to know the spirit for the fight that you have and to know the, what it feels like to get hit, know what, what the speed feels like, what all these things look like. Once you have that, once you've been through uh, a number of fights, um, you can map things better, right? You can you can imagine the constraints. So, shadow like shadow boxing, I think, is useless for a a novice in martial arts because they don't know what they're representing. It's like yeah, yeah, they don't have the ability to imagine the context that actually that actually they're they're mapping to. Um, for an experienced martial artist who's been in lots of fights and lots of uh, lots of sparring, they can they can work through their shadow boxing and work on specific skills, specific spl- uh, slips, and they can map exactly what it's going to look like to have opponent of you know specific size and length and speed trying to throw a jab at them and how they're going to react and how which way they might slip and what the footwork might look like. But you you don't get that until you have uh, until you have enough reps under your belt. Um, and this is my hesitation around some of the the, the slow stuff is uh, if the athlete has the right context, then they can utilize those drills to to train. And a lot of times, once once you're once you're skilled enough, you need to spend most of your time that way because otherwise it's too dangerous. You're too dangerous. Your partners are too dangerous, and you. Um, and and you're just gonna you're just gonna beat yourself. But what you're up. saying is, on the front end, as a novice, if you don't understand or have an appreciation for what it feels like to get thumped or stabbed, you can build up a sense of false confidence or like a sense of false skill, um, and that can be a not useful thing on the front end. Yeah, we we constantly have that that balance, and maybe slow fast is the wrong distinction to make um, because it's it can be a varying of intensity, it can be a varying of like like you say, it's constraints led. It's like we can only work with legs, or we can if you're grappling on the ground, you can only like um, you have to keep one arm taped to your body or something like that and then see what you can discover with the rest of your body or you have to fight three or you have to fight one guy on the ground wrestling and the other guy's allowed to kick you in the back as soon as you stop moving like constraints like this you know what i mean so this there's a variety of ways that we vary the drills but not all of them look like um traditional one-on-one ufc or like traditional martial arts certainly and some of them don't look like uh, ufc my um 
one of my good friends and uh, sister instructor based out of the academy in Beverly Hills, Martin Wheeler, likes to say that. So he co-owns that place with Higa Machado, the you know Brazilian jiu-jitsu legend, and he has guys that from jiu-jitsu that come and train Sistema with him, not because they want to get good at Sistema, but because as an operating system, it helps them improve and become more diverse in their jiu-jitsu, so that they literally end up creating technique, they create transitions that aren't taught like or ordinarily they find back doors that aren't in the in the standard curriculum of things um and what he says is that you know it makes you more adaptable because if you if you t- if you took two jiu-jitsu guys two black belts and they're wrestling then uh, and they're grappling then basically their skills will come out their training will come out their muscle memory the things that they've learned to do if you th- give one of them a knife it will start to look like systema very quickly right? <laughs> because one of them suddenly has to adapt to an environment that he doesn't understand and doesn't know and then his body has to find solutions as a complex it's a more complex movement problem that's not constrained in the same way and then the way that you would train for that is not the same way that you see actually people training knife defense in brazilian jiu-jitsu not not to denigrate that but it's not it's the way they train jiu-jitsu for jiu-jitsu is perfect for training two people in a ground fight right even if you allow for strikes sometimes but it's not effective for training against the knife because they don't actually practice the contact with the knife and what that feels like and what it happens and where you feel it somebody drawing it when it comes out and things like that so it's there's i think every system does exactly what it's supposed to do extraordinarily well um but few of them spread bet uh, and i think that's one of the things that Sistema does is that it spread bets and says what we're trying to do is make ourselves extremely adaptable um organisms that can cope with most things and yeah if i fight a guy on the ground and he's a brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt chances are i'm done and if i if i decide to box you know mayweather standing up i'm probably done but let's not try and get into those situations and see if we can work around all these things as much as we can does that kind of make sense not as a like a defense of the methodology but just as a as a spread of what we're trying to do it's it's it's, it's about providing more affordances as uh viveki might say as opposed to fewer so mm. yeah i mean i i i've done like i said i've done some stuff with uh with son students and then i also had a sistema instructor who trained out of parkour visions so i've done some stem i've done some of the breath work some of the tension work i think it's a really brilliant uh physical system in a lot of ways um when I've sparred with uh, with system-based fighters, um, I find they don't have some of the competencies in range control in in being able to uh, put together combinations and some of these things that I that I get out of people who have MMA and kickboxing backgrounds. They usually can hit very hard, can take a good hit, um, but I, I do have some hesitations around um, some of the stuff that I feel like is missing. Um, I, I, I like the breadth, I like the spread of it. Um, I, I'd also like, you know, we've all seen the Michael Ribico videos where he's knocking people over while sitting down and maybe those are taken out of context and people don't see it, but you know, it looks a lot like, you know, traditional, um, compliance stooge, uh, demonstrations from any number of martial arts. Sure. Yeah. So, it's I a mean, point of contention. Yeah. It's like most of those things are to demonstrate distance and timing and, uh, and kind of what the possibilities are of understanding where somebody's movement come from. And he'll tell you flat out there's no mystery to it, that it's just he's messing with people's flinch responses and that not everybody flinches that way. So that if they don't flinch, then you have to hit them and then you work. But in, in studying those timing drills, you learn angles and areas in which you can develop your ability to position yourself and strike properly or grapple properly. So it's that's, that's another um, a big thing. And I think part of the problem with that is, is that it's then spawned a whole bunch of people who are doing the same thing, who are like, claiming to wave their hands around and throw people over and there's none of that informed 
work going on underneath it, right? If if Michael tries to do something wavy and it doesn't work, and I've seen, you know, I've trained with him and worked at seminars. If he does something wavy and the guy just doesn't respond, you know, he's just belligerent and comes through, then he's, he waves, it gives the guy a chance to see and flinch. And if it doesn't work, immediately the strike comes in and the guy moves anyway because he's physically moved. Do you see what I mean by the pressure? Um, so that stuff only works if somebody else is attempting. In, in a way, if somebody else is already kind of scared and they're already attempting not to get hit all the time. So it, it exploits kind of like a, a cycle psychological weakness or an entrainment between two people um but it's not offered actually as a in our style at least it's not offered as a physical self-defense technique it's it's offered as a training technique that helps you to understand position and timing more but anyway that's a that's another subject yeah yeah i, I, don't, I don't know enough to, to comment on that so we'll we'll, we'll. <laughs> I, I will say straight out that most of the stuff that you see to that regard on 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 YouTube is just pure bullshit. <laughs> In the same way as you see the the Chinese guy with the with the pajamas waving and knocking down fifty of his students, like most of what's offered in like no touch stuff is just crap. That's exactly what it is. But um, I will say there is a place for some drills like that. Um, there's a context for them that you can learn things from. But it's not something that um, it's not something that we emphasize a lot in our, in our former training. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. Whenever you see a lot of demonstrations like that, and you don't see the the the, the coach showing how they move in an alive, uh, distant context, um, you know, as a martial artist, I'm very trained to look at that uh, with, with great skepticism. As uh, you know, essentially, um, uh, you're yeah, you're you're teaching you're teaching your students to make you look good. That's what that was. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and there's no, that's an absolute argument against that kind of training, and it's one that, the one that kind of honestly splits the systemic community a little bit as well. Like, there's there's some people who go a lot towards that, and they're like, oh, but this is the most important thing, and you have to learn that. And there's others who are like, eh, it's not the thing; it's one aspect of of how we train, and you shouldn't go down that route too long. You know, so it's it's an interesting thing. So cool, yeah. So um, so. Just to, uh, I'm being mindful of your time now um, here because we uh, we started early in new thought and we uh, we drag it in. But um, I just want to kind of touch on one thing, and that's this this concept of one through theme um, that you seem to have pulled out is the the dangers of reductionism in a way. Do you know the dangers of taking something that's multifaceted that maybe might have originated in something um, something more more comprehensive or more malleable or more informed that gave you more of these affordances to work with and through either you know an industrial mindset or like a very strict pedagogy or whatever it is that we can systematically remove everything that's useful (laughs) from (laughs) from a traditional practice or from you know whether it's a dance or a martial art or gymnastics movement or wherever it's going to be um how do you see that fitting in with people generally i I think there's tendency to overanalyze and just think that just this spotting of patterns and pulling out the yeah almost in kind of a you know not too bad but in a kind of very tim ferris way like how do i get most of the work here without really doing the work right what, what's the 80 20 can i just practice the 20 percent that's going to get me all the strength and all the dexterity and do the things and in doing so they actually the reduction takes them out of the context that the other skills are in and they end up focusing their skills in in the wrong way they'll get a result but it might not be for the reasons that they thought how do you see this fitting into the wider context for society right now and this is a big question but for me i feel like at least in modern western culture people are so focused on getting one result and trying to do it the with the with the least effort and just trying to kind of find the way that they can almost phone it in you know (laughs) in order to get a big result and there's there's this balance between 
necessary play and and necessary scope and necessary awareness of how it connects with everything else you know like Viveki talks about affordances and things being lost and having an ecology of practices right that that will inform the way that you understand yourself and your interactions with other people um and it doesn't seem like modern western culture is very well set up to encourage that it seems like it's a process of narrowing it or encourages us to spend time looking at screens instead of going outside or spend time picking one sport or one career and doing that and getting really good at it instead of being more rounded as a person do you, do you have anything to say on that as a general societal trend or <laughs> <laughs> i have a lot to say on that um that's a whole other podcast really but i i think that in, in some sense one of the fundamental, maybe philosophical uh, points that we're at is that we have, uh, in many ways, reached the end of the the insight generation from reductionism, and a lot of the systems that need to be uh, understood better for us to progress uh, as human beings, as a science, etc., are all within complex systems that have emergent properties, and that reductionism doesn't help us understand emergence. Um, and so we can we can see this on any number of levels. We can see this at the level of physical culture. It turns out that, for instance, practicing change of direction drills um, with cones without any kind of perceptual feedback has almost no translation to the field. And I believe the same is true of kata, that kata has almost no translation to being able to fight um, unless you fight. Mm, yeah. And then it becomes like shadow boxing, maybe. It's like maybe you can see a context for it and you can apply it in a different way. Yeah. Mm. Um, but but you've 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 missed the the baby with the bathwater, right? Um, so we, but on the flip side, we we do have to filter, right? We cannot simply add everything. Um, there's too many things. So you you build an ecology of practices, and if you just add whatever willy nilly, um, and you have no filter system, then then you're you're not going to get anywhere particularly, right? So so I, I really think that it's important for us to think from a Pareto distribution, right? We have to think about what is that twenty. So we need to be able to uh, to hack, right? Um, if you're a, if you're a generalist, for instance. Um, so one thing that I think this is a little bit of a tangent, but hopefully it's interesting. One thing that I think is happening within the broader movement culture idea is that people are actually fishing from the shallow end of the Pareto distribution, right? So, so let's say that we want to, we want to be movers and by movers, that means that we, we have some ineffable quality that is shared by a dancer and a parkour athlete and a boxer, Right. So we want to adopt some set of practices that give us that thing that all of them share. So, first of all, it's not clear that that having the thing that all of them share is actually better than just having the fundamental skills of each. Right. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Like you glue them together, you don't get something that's bigger than the sum of the parts. Exactly. Mm. So, I mean, the basic idea here is something like, you know, um, within. Within cognitive performance, there is this concept of G, right? There's one central factor that tends to explain the the majority of of performance in any number of fields, right? And you can get better at you know you can if you if you go on Lumosity and you play their brain games, you get better at that specific brain game, but it it doesn't help you with any other brain game. So when it comes to cognitive performance, there's a central factor, but it doesn't appear to be malleable, right? You can't really Right. You can't you can't you can't make it better. You can get better at specific tasks. You can't get better at the general thing. So. 
and then when it comes to physical performance, there's actually not, it, it doesn't look like there is necessarily a central factor that's that's strongly correlated across lots of different uh, physical tasks. Right? Physical tasks seem to be more task specific. So no, no such thing as general dexterity or general athleticism, as you might put it, or something. It's not clear that there is, anyways, right? The research doesn't support it the same way that it supports G. So, so the idea here is that people are claiming, okay, there is a general motor factor, and we can, and if you improve, and we can improve it, and if you improve it, then you'll adapt to new things faster, right? Um, so, those are actually some a bunch, a series of major claims that are not well established. Um, so, so, so you can have this idea of the generalist as the person who has that general factor. Um, but I, I, I think that's not uh, something we can support well. So then what you see happen, I think, is that when you adopt practices from parkour, when you adopt practices from, from boxing, and you adopt practices from, from dance, what tends to happen, I think, is that mostly people within the movement culture are, are actually professionally competing at the attention grabbing. Right? They're... And so they grab things not because of their fundamental ability to, to shift your capacity to be an adaptive athlete, but they grab things because of their ability to generate attention. And I think there is an inherent um, there's an inherent tendency to grab those things that you have the least overlap and com- competition with the the central sport because you're trying to stand out. <laughs> So let's say Floyd Mayweather does some some tennis ball drills as part of his right. Floyd Mayweather knows that those have the tiniest percent of an impact on his ability to actually fight. But you know, he needs to get the hundred percent right. He can't only take the twenty percent because he's a boxer, right? And he's going to spend all of his life trying to find a, a, a tenth of a percent edge. Right. He's already doing his sparring. He's already doing his heavy bag work. He's going to put in hours of sparring and heavy bag work. And then, you know, then he's going to play with his tennis balls. So now I come over and I'm like studying what he's doing and I'm never going to be competent like he is in sparring. Like I go, it's impossible for me. But if I pick up this one little thing that he does and I can now all of a sudden be even more competent and have cooler tricks with that thing. That's impressive to people. You're never gonna. You're never going to out impress the. You know, you're never going to do something more impressive than the specialists at the center of their specialty. But you can you can pick and choose little things on the edges of their specialty that you can become better than them at, and that that makes a cool set of party tricks. So is that true in like parkour, for example? And to relate it back there, you've got people who are very good at moving A to B through environments, and then you've got people who just focus on just tricking, right? Just the most spectacular way to come off an object, and that's what gets them YouTube clicks instead of like the yeah. Yeah, that that's also. I mean, I think to some degree that that the development of parkour has been shifted towards a more acrobatic focus because uh, because we're all competing in an attention economy, right? Um, but but you know you you could you could look at parkour and you could take some some uh, some drills in parkour that are not very fundamental and get really good at them, right? Um, and so a lot of this looks like basically that. So. So now, if you instead of looking at boxing and saying, "Here's some cool tricks that boxers do that I can do and outcompete the boxers in," you, if you asked instead, "What is the part of boxing that will make me the most functional athlete?" It's sparring and hitting the heavy bag, right? As a generalist, you need to get rid of the stuff that's 
that that has small shifts in your skills. Um, and and so that's where I apply the Pareto distribution, right? Like I'm not like uh, Faraz Zahabi, uh, who's GSP's uh, coach, his jujitsu coach. He was talking about the fact that he doesn't think that um, that focus met work is necessary for a striker. Really? That's pretty unorthodox. So. Okay. So his argument is that there are two things that a striker needs. They need heavy bag work and they need sparring. That's it. Right? Heavy bag work is where you develop power and where you find specific techniques. And sparring is where you learn application. That That's it. And, and he points out that you know, all the focus mitts, all the like little, um, you know, the, 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 the pool noodle drills, right? All of those post date Sugar Ray Robinson, Sugar Ray Leonard, uh, Roberto Duran, George Foreman, Muhammad Ali, right? Customato was not doing that shit with, with, um, Mike Tyson and other people. Uh, like yeah. Mike Tyson, yeah. right? The greats of the sport. Like, are boxers better today than they were in the 1970s? I don't think so. Right? And they built those skills in the 1970s without all these cool modern training tricks. So now, that's not to say that if you're a boxer, you shouldn't do that stuff. Because maybe it does give you a tenth of a percent edge. But it's low percentage. But if you're a specialist, <laughs> what's the 20% of boxing that gives you 80% of the uh, benefit? It's heavy bag work and sparring. Um and the, the thing is that if you really are dedicated to being a generalist in movement, that's actually hard to commit to because usually the stuff that is the best in any discipline is the stuff that you're never going to be nearly as good at the specialist at if you're a generalist. And it's also a lot of times the stuff that's a little bit hard and scary. Yeah. Or it requires a lot of drudgery and just repetition and just like going through it. Yeah. It's like putting your time in. It's like, yeah. It's, fo- it's the foundational work that really builds it up. Right? So I do think that the Pareto distribution is a really useful way of thinking about things. Uh, I, I think there's some, some benefit to that. But we also have to think about emergence and, you know, how these things come together and, and the fact that uh, you, you can't reduce you can't reduce um, change of direction in sport to, to change of direction around cones. You can't reduce the ability to punch people in the head to punching in the air, right? Uh, you know, Bruce Lee famously said, uh, fear not the man who's uh, practiced a thousand punches, fear the man who's practiced one punch a thousand times. I, I mean, I'm not afraid of either of those people because a thousand is not very many. Right? <laughs> a few million, then we'll be talking. So, yeah. Well, it can, ten thousand or a hundred thousand, but even then, it, it like neither of those describes someone who's actually fundamentally developed a real skill set for hitting somebody. Because you need to you need to practice the you need to fear the person who's practiced punching someone who's trying to punch back and trying not to be punched ten thousand times. That's that's the only context that matters. Yeah. Okay, so so you would extrapolate that out to people looking to learn things in general. It's okay to look for the hacks. It's okay to look for the shortcuts, as long as you are on the right side of that hack and you're not making a reductionist shortcut that that's overly focused on a peripheral skill. Yeah, another one of our heuristics with evolve move play is always train at the highest level of complexity that allows you to adapt whatever to derive whatever specific adaption that you want because com- you're you're always getting more adaption when you're. When you're training in a more complex way. Yeah, that's something we share in Systema, definitely. So as, as soon as you start looking comfortable, you just layer up. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah so we, we, you know, um, like, like, 
like you know you can practice mobility by sort of doing the splits and maybe that's what you need because you know you have a specific limitation but if you practice a lot of capoeira kicks your legs are going to get more flexible right and you're also going to have cool skills and it's going to be, fun. be fun yeah N- nothing's worse than isometrics that's place <laughs> yeah, yeah cool so so yeah so i mean and then and then i i think to go, to go back to your to your original question I think that one of the fundamental problems that we face as human beings is that we have been uh, reduced to uh, our identity, our skill sets, our humanity has been reduced. I, I gave a talk called Move Like a Human uh, a few years ago. You can check it out. But but basically, I lay out this argument that that we have made a mistake in thinking that what people need is self-esteem. Right. Yeah. Uh, what people actually need is the development of a self that is worth esteeming. And the f- sources of self-worth lie in broad competence, mm. right? And that's what actually reduces that anxiety that so many people are facing. But the modern economic system, um, which has brilliant impacts in many ways, right? Like, let's let's not let's not uh, throw the baby of capitalism out with the bathwater because, like, you know, we're talking we to each other because of this. a few good things from this, including Skype. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> You know, I, I just had uh, an infection and had to use doxycycline, and you know, thank God that I didn't have that infection. You know, destroy my genitals, which was what was going <laughs> on. Uh, not an STD, but something weird. Um, in any event, uh, so my point is, okay, capitalism is great, but it incentivizes people to use comparative advantage as much as possible to the point where they narrow their competencies to the greatest degree possible because that's what is most economically efficient. So from a from a general sort of uh, capital-moving efficiency standpoint, the optimal system is a system in which everyone does only the thing that they have some comparative advantage over as many other people in the marketplace as possible. And what that means is that you would spend all of your time doing one thing. Uh, and the only way to judge your your success is how much do you earn doing it? Yeah. So it's that swapping away. It's that over-specialization, Henry Ford production line mentality. It's just like, yeah, we can make things more efficiently if we put everybody in a sweatshop and all they do all day is put one rivet on a shoe and pass it on, you know, but we can increase, you know, the value of our lives immeasurably if we're not doing that (laughs) just by adding another shoe or anything else or anything more. So, so this over-specialization is the, is the depth of the problem. And so you're seeking a breadth of complexity in your life or breadth of competence will make you feel more solid, more secure in a, in a shifting, uncertain world. We need an ecology of practices. The problem with efficiency is that it is fragile. So you, if you have, let's say you specialize in your comparative advantage, and maybe that's putting a, you know putting a, a, a rivet on, right? Well, if there's a new if there's a new automation system, a robot that can do it, yeah, yeah, then now yeah. you you have nothing. Yeah, yeah. So the and human beings, human beings gain self-worth through their competence across a broad variety of things. Mm-hmm. When you reduce your worth to only what you can earn or how yeah. you do a very specific task or how sexy you are, that's not mm-hmm. a sufficient foundation for well-being. It's and not. So I mean, I'm pretty, I'm pretty damn sexy. So, are you sure about that? <laughs> no, I've, I found that not to be true. Even though, yeah, definitely. <laughs> when 
you when you post your butt on Instagram and it gets a million likes, it, it doesn't actually make your life good. <laughs> it doesn't. Uh, no, mostly because I only get three. But still, that's, that's <laughs> and two of those are my mum. So. <laughs> So, so yes, yeah, so that's my that's my take on that idea. I think that reductionism, you know, reductionism has given us the computer that we're talking on, right? It's given us an enormous amount of of really beneficial things, um, but it's also misled us about the nature of reality and the nature of ourselves and the nature of um, what will actually derive well-being for us. And so we we live with a this bizarre paradox that we live in the most affluent, most protected, safest time in human history, and um, and yet we have epidemics of depression and anxiety and suicide that are rising. Uh, so, and meaninglessness in life. So we, we have to, we have to find a way to balance that, right? We don't want to throw out, uh, you know, manufacturing, factory manufacturing. It's useful. Sure. Or antibiotics or anything else. Yeah. <laughs> it, we have to recognize that it, it, it doesn't capture the full system, the full picture. So that, that, that's my take on that. And uh, yeah, like I said, that's that's a really deep, long-term conversation. That we I, could have. And I would encourage anybody who's interested in that specific question to look up the um, one of a couple of conversations between Rafe and uh, John Viveki on that subject, right? Finding meaning and how embodiment f- factors into that. Some really good talks on there. And, and uh, I actually talked to Viveki as well uh, a couple of a few weeks ago. So there's another podcast on this one uh, based on that too. So yeah, he's the way to go if you want to talk about creating meaning. <laughs> so definitely, it's brilliant. Well, thanks so much, Rafe. I really appreciate um, you spending the time today. So if people are looking to increase the breadth of their movement and adaptability in, in their lives where would they where would they find you and evolve move play and uh, and what can they get started with right away yeah yeah absolutely so um EvolveMovePlay.com is uh, where to start. You know, it's Rafe Kelly Movement on Facebook, Rafe Kelly on Instagram. Um, we have a basic program uh, called the Evolve Play Foundations. That's just a really great place to get started with building uh, fundament, fundamental movement competency that can be done indoors or outdoors, um, you know, at, at any level. And that's kind of the entry point into our system. And from there, you can start picking up the parkour skills and we're building uh, other aspects of, of what we do uh, in our, our online academy as we speak. Which looks, um, looks great. By the way, I just got sent the invite this morning. I just strafed through the new layout. It's, oh, it looks really nice. Awesome. Yeah. So that's that is um, that's where what people can do. So what we'll do is we'll uh, we'll send over a link for the uh, for the um, the foundation sign up, and you can put it right in your um, in your show notes. And and uh, we're excited to uh, to see some more Sistema folks come join. Perfect. Us. Brilliant. Well, thanks so much, Rafe. Hope we can uh, continue this uh, another time. This has been a true pleasure. So. Yeah. Thank you very much, Glenn. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about classes, workshops, and seminars at NC Sistema, please visit us online at www.ncsistema.com.